Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Tuesday, September 15th, 2015. Yeah, we're halfway through September, and uh, Dow Dow Jones Industrial Average closed over 200 points today. Up over 200 points. Can't believe I'm doing stock market reports on my program. Still no sign of the uh, wipeout of the Shemitah, or the Super Shemitah is what they're talking about now. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down and stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bibles and do the comparative work to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, doomsday prognosticators, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, you know, whose small group uh, study materials we need to be studying instead of the Bible, yeah, to see if what they're actually saying squares with what God's Word says. It, it's a, a proper distinction of uh, law and gospel, sound exegesis, good hermeneutics, a Christ-centered uh, approach to the Bible. Yeah, it's about Jesus, not about you. To see if what they're saying actually is true, um, or if they're just making stuff up, they're being really creative, if you would, in teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. Now, we are not going to do a Shemitah update today. I'm like Shemitahed out. I mean, this whole, I mean, I am just absolutely at the moment just frustrated. And the reason I'm frustrated about the whole Shemitah thing is because, of course, the uh, the people out there who've been fear-mongering about the Shemitah, they're not repenting. They're doubling down. I saw a uh, an article in uh, Charisma in magazine on their website uh, basically saying, oh, listen, the, the Shemitah passed on the 13th, but it's the super Shemitah on the 23rd that we're supposed to be worried about. Which, by the way, um, that is, I think, probably some kind of reference to the, uh, the, the year of Jubilee. And what a lot of people don't know is that uh, we do not know when the uh, Jubilees fall. We don't know. No, we don't. And I'll, I'll explain that probably in an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith where Jonathan Kahn talks about this. But uh, one of the things that a lot of people do not know about Jonathan Kahn is that he's basing his dates on a Jewish calendar created by Jewish rabbis um, after 
uh, you know, Jesus Christ. And these rabbis, uh, you know, they did not have the right dates for, uh, you know, <laughs> you know how long the Jews were in Babylon and uh, and how long Babylon reigned for. No, they don't have the right dates for that. And some people have actually speculated that uh, the reason why these Jews had the wrong dates for the Babylonian captivity is because they were purposely trying to make it so that Jesus could not be the fulfillment of uh, Daniel's uh, prophecy of the 70 weeks. No, no, I'm not making that up. That's an absolute, uh, that's a true fact. And as a result of this, because the Jewish tradition, the Jewish calendar that uh, Jews follow today is based upon the work of these rabbis, and it does, you know, there's like a big gap in it. We don't know. We do not know when the uh, the Jubilees fall. And so anybody claiming that the Super Shemitah is coming up and that the, the Jubilee is uh, now the thing to worry about. It's like, when, when on earth did the Jubilee have to be something that anybody worried about? Anyway. Um, because of that, uh, because we don't know when the Jubilees are, it, you know, those out there talking about the Super Shemitah and the Jubilee, they don't know what they're talking about. They, they literally don't know what they're talking about. Nobody knows when the Jubilees are. Nobody. So, uh, you know, it's like, <sighs> yeah, it's very frustrating. But yeah, anyway, of course, nowhere in the Bible does it say that uh, God's going to punish uh, Gentile nations as a result of the Shemitah or in tandem with Shemitah cycles or anything like that. You know, this is all just utter nonsense. But uh, anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And I got to tell you, the material that I have for this episode is probably going to take up more than one episode. That's just the best way I can do it. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing um, the first installment. I think we're going to end up cutting this up into a couple of installments, but we're going to do the first installment on the history and teaching of the New Apostolic Reformation. Yep, the New Apostolic Reformation. And uh, if you're not familiar with Dominionism or the New Apostolic Reformation, this is going to be an interesting episode for you. One that I think will um, will be uh, well, at least uh, eye opening. At least that's the hope. And uh, and so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going back into the history and taking a look at some of its founding, you know, voices, if you would. And this is before it was the New Apostolic Reformation. We're going to look at uh, those who were responsible for kind of starting off the latter rain movement. Which, if I no, if I if I got my historical facts right. The uh, latter rain movement, uh, where William Brannan was a part of this, but uh, the the AOG uh, declared it to be a heresy in the uh, in the in the early part, you know, what nineteen seventies, I think. But um, so we're going to be listening to a little bit of uh, William Brannan. We're going to be listening to C. Peter Wagner. We're going to be listening to where the uh, the Seven Mountains came from. And uh, and we're going to be listening to you know, you know uh, current voices within the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, and then listen to uh, Lance Wal- Walnow uh, preaching and teaching on the Seven Mountains. Now, like I said, this is probably going to get cut up into a couple of episodes of Fighting for the Faith, so you you need to be aware that um, we do plan on this, in a sense, kind of being a, a historical piece. And uh, I think it's important that when you understand the roots of something and understand its major tenets or its major core theology or where it came from, 
Uh, it'll help you identify different manifestations of it today because the one thing about the New Apostolic Reformation is that it has impacted and influenced many, many different Christian denominations and movements uh, throughout the visible church on earth. And, uh, and I think it's extremely dangerous. And so uh, since we're going to be doing an entire episode, if you would, dedicated to the New Apostolic Reformation, well, that requires us to do this. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're Pinky. The pinky and the brain, 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 brain. brain. All right, so uh, what we're going to be doing first, we're going to start off with our New Apostolic Reformation uh, look at uh, the uh, teachings and uh, ideas of this movement. We're going to begin with a William Branham section. Yeah, that's right, William Branham. And uh, for this episode of Fighting for the Faith, I think it's important for you to know that what we will be doing is uh, posting a link to an article written by Bob DeWay a while back from Critical Issues Commentary entitled The Roots and Fruits of the New Apostolic Reformation. The Roots and Fruits of the New Apostolic Reformation. And, uh, and he has a, um, a section in this article dedicated to explaining the latter reign movement, the fivefold ministry, and uh, people like William Branham. So you, ha- you have to understand that this comes out of... Uh, you know, kind of a uh, a metastasized uh, it, thing within the uh, Pentecostal movement. And what we're going to be listening to first is we're going to be listening to William Branham explaining to us what the uh, what he believes the gospel is. And you have to listen carefully for it. And uh, the idea here is is that the, the, you you got to hear how, what he thinks the gospel is because. Once you understand what he thinks the gospel is, then you will understand how he is, uh, you know, how this plays into then uh, the overall theology and ideas that kind of get embedded into the New Apostolic Reformation. So here uh, to begin is uh, William Branham, and uh, we'll we'll play this in context where he will he will explain to us what the uh, the gospel of the kingdom is. Here we go. I want to ask you something. If what I have said is the truth, if it is the truth, then God's obligated to his word, not to me, but to his word. Is that right? He's obligated to his word. And then he will bring that to pass just exactly the way he said he would do it. And if he does do it, will all of you then in here, if you haven't received Jesus Christ, would you be willing to do it? And you, the chair that can see his mercy to others, yeah, he will have mercy to you 
if you just have faith and believe. Just pray and say, Lord, I, I'm a believer, and I want you to heal me tonight. And God will do it. We have just left Africa recently, where I'm to return again in the next few weeks. Africa, India, Palestine, Germany, and a ministry. And at Durban, South Africa, after about three or four people had passed through the prayer line, and they seen the power of the Holy Spirit moving in the people and seeing what God was doing, 30,000 accepted Jesus as personal Savior in one altar call. 30,000 at one time. So I believe if we'll take God's Word as the rule and go into all the world and preach the gospel, the gospel came not in word only, but through power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice what he's saying there, that the gospel is not in word only, but is in power. The gospel is the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not the gospel, by the way. The gospel is clearly defined in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in that passage of Scripture, you know, starting at verse 1, the Apostle Paul reminds the church at Corinth of the gospel that he preached. And uh, the gospel that he preached is laid out very clearly by the Apostle Paul. And here's what he says, verse uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. By the way, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion, and it means good news. And the good news is that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But when somebody like William Brandon comes along and says the gospel is demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not the gospel. That is a false gospel. That is a twisting of the gospel. It's very subtle. And it's important to note that this is really at the heart and core of the theology and ideas of the New Apostolic Reformation. And uh, so let's listen a little bit more to uh, William Branham. In fact, I'll back this up just a smidge so we can catch the context again and hear what he says. So I believe if we'll take God's word as the rule and go into all the world and preach the gospel, the gospel came not in word only, but through power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. So the, the gospel is demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. That, demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit is not the gospel. I went into nations that say, now we don't want missionaries. We know more about it than you do. But the thing we want to see is somebody that's got faith enough to make God's word manifest. That's what they want to see. And that's faith enough to make God's word manifest? What? How they get converted. That's how they find Christ. It's because they they believe in that manner. All right. So that is, you know, sound bite number one, if you would, from William Branham, where he tries to lay out his theology. I don't even know what to call this. 
um, you know, of and definition of the gospel, where he literally said that the gospel is demonstrating the power of the Spirit. That is patently false. That is not what the scriptures teach at all as regard in regards to what the gospel is. This is something very different than biblical Christianity. And uh, our next uh, soundbite that we're going to be listening to from William Brannan, and this is a, this is a little bit creepy, uh, but what we're going to be listening to is uh, him talking about, uh, you know, talking about Satan, talking about uh, the scriptures, and there's supposedly a voice, a voice that he's going to hear while he's preaching that he thinks is the uh, the voice of God, and so we're going to pick up uh, in the middle of this. Uh, speech delivered by uh, William Branham and uh, see what kind of theology we can pick up again. He is a major player in the core foundation of the whole New Apostolic Reformation. Here we go. And our Lord said to his disciples, have faith in God. For if ye shall say, ye shall say to this mountain, be moved. Don't doubt in your heart. But believe what you have said is coming to pass. You can have what you said. Satan, you know the scripture on that. And I've just taught this people that God is in them. And if God is in them and they speak to that disease and say, be away from me and don't doubt in their heart, right then that disease has to move. Mm, Sounds like an early predecessor to the word of faith heresy. He said so. For it's not them that speak, it's the Father that dwells in them that's speaking. They're in need, so come out of them in the name of Jesus Christ. I say as God's servant, by a message from an angel who anointed and has proved to the people that Jesus is here, and the message is right, so come out of them in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, did you catch that? He literally said that uh, my message from an angel who anointed and has proved to the people that Jesus is here. Yeah, apparently he claims to have some kind of special angelic anointing, or claimed he's no longer alive. Are you to leave every sick person and get into outer darkness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, did you hear that? That was a weird uh, audio artifact, and uh, apparently William Brannan heard it. I'm sure you heard that. How many heard that great roar go through the building just then? That was it. Surely you won't doubt any longer. That was God speaking back. Uh So apparently God was speaking back while William Branham was preaching. Can't you see? Rise. Do you believe you're healed? Do you believe that God answered prayer? Raise your hands to Him. Thank Him for it. It's over. You're healed. Jesus said, If ye shall say, What is it? When you're out from Babylon, you're out from under unbelief, you're out from under superstition, you're out from under all these things, and you're filled with God's own life. Your voice is His voice. You are. I spoke it. 
in my room a while ago, God told me to do this. And here it is. He's confirmed it right now. So he's claiming direct revelation from God. Yeah, God told me to do this. By the way, the uh, if you know, remember Bob Jones of the Kansas City Prophets, and uh, as well as Todd Bentley, they uh, you know they claim to uh, minister uh, and uh, from William Brannan's angel. And apparently, the name of that angel that he claims that he received that special anointing from, uh, its name is the Winds of Change. At least that's what Bob Jones and uh, Todd Bentley say. Amen. And blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, what a time. That's the first time that's happened since South Africa. How long will you grope in unbelief? You get that? The wind swept through this platform here. Just now as the Holy Spirit crossed over here because it was... So apparently another noise. Uh, that was the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through the uh, PA system there spoken word of God that did it. Amen. How many of you feel? Raise your hands. How many feel different in your body? Raise your hands. There it is. You are now healed by the glory of God. All that feels different. If you couldn't move your arm, move it. If you couldn't hear out of your ear, stick your finger to your ear and listen. You can hear. If you couldn't walk, stand to your feet. If you're blind, take off your shades from your eyes, you can see the Holy Spirit passed through this place just now in a confirmation of the Word. Hallelujah! Blessed be the name of the Lord. A wind like went over the building. How many could feel that when it went through here? Raise your hands. Be honest with yourself. That wind that passed through the building, that's the Holy Spirit. Say it, and it shall be done. Like a great loving wind went... Right down across the here, and I heard it as it crossed over the audience. You heard it and felt it too. It's His presence. All now that feel different. All now that feel that you're healed. All now that feels that Christ is in you. What was that? Just like the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost. Come right down the wind that swept over here. How many is a witness of it? Raise your hand. Everyone, honest from your heart. There it is. It swept right through the building just then. It's the same Holy Ghost. The same Holy Ghost. Yeah, it didn't sound like the Holy Ghost to me. It sounded like somebody... Um... Uh, how should we put this? Uh, uh, messing with the PA system? Yeah, it, that, that didn't sound supernatural to me. It sounded very natural. Spirit comes by the same word. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. All that believe that you're healed, stand on your feet. Everyone that believes that you feel different, yet if you're right now healed, stand on your feet. Amen. Amen. That's it. Amen. While they're waiting, as you begin to feel different, if you had a headache, if it's gone, stand up. If you were sick at your stomach, stand up if it's gone. Stand up as a witness. There you are. What does it do? It's the Holy Ghost that did it. Amen. Feel with His goodness. Oh, my. Wonderful. Oh, right. Yeah, all right. Okay, so you kind of getting the idea here. Now, again, the reason why we're putting William Branham into the mix is kind of, well, because he's really at ground zero and at the theological root. Yeah, you can always tell the fruit of, uh, of a tree based upon its root, and William Branham is an integral part of the root theological system of the whole New Apostolic Reformation. 
Now, what we're going to be listening to next is audio from a gentleman by the name of Gilman Hill. And Gilman Hill is going to explain to us um, where he, uh, well, he's going to explain to us how the um, Seven Mountain Mandate came to be based upon his meeting with Lauren Cunningham and Bill Bright. And we're going to play this in its entirety, which, which means we're going to put a little bit of context into this so you can kind of get an idea of the type of person in the theology of Gilman Hill. And we'll probably end up having to take a, 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 a commercial break in the middle of our Gilman Hill segment. But what we're doing right now is just slowly starting to build a case to give you a flavor and a feel for what's ticking in the uh, theology and ideas of the uh, New Apostolic Reformation. And so here's uh, Gilman Hill's uh, uh, son to introduce him, and we will go from there. Here we go. Uh, this is my father, Gilman Hill. And uh, he, was, he was sort of an original marketplace minister back before anybody knew about a term like that. And uh, we met the, the Lord... In the early 1970s, uh, we grew up in a Lutheran church, and we didn't have a real clear understanding uh, of teaching, of what relationship with God would really be like in, in those days. But uh, in the early 1970s, we started to discover that in our family. And I remember uh, one of the things that, uh, that my dad wanted to do was legally give everything that he had to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he went and asked uh, his attorneys, I'd like to uh, not have my assets be in my name anymore. I'd like to have them legally be placed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because I would like to be a steward rather than an owner. How do I do that? And the attorney said, I don't know. Nobody ever asked me that before. And... Uh, and they worked on it for quite some time to figure out how could he literally place his businesses and his assets in the name of Jesus Christ so that when, when you went to the county courthouse to see who was record owner, it would not say Gilman Hill, it would say Jesus Christ. And uh, so uh, they came up with a, a legal mechanism to do that. And uh, it's a long story we won't take time to tell now, but... Uh, but uh, literally the day after that legal documentation was signed, there was uh, not not a thousand percent, but a couple thousand fold multiplication that took place in uh, assets uh, literally the next day. And so uh, it was as though the Lord said to him, now that you are no longer an owner, and these assets and businesses are no longer in your name, watch what I will do with my businesses and my assets uh, now that you are only a trustee uh, for the benefit of the kingdom rather than your own benefit. That was quite a miraculous thing, and, and it was just one thing. But uh, as a result of that, we got to know uh, Jan and I met in Youth with a Mission in YWAM in 1970. Five, I guess it was. And uh, my dad got to know Lauren Cunningham a little bit uh, at that time. And, uh, 
and Bill Bright uh, with Campus Crusade because... And that's right. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade and Lauren Cunningham are integral parts of the foundation of the whole New Apostolic Reformation. We were supporting both those organizations. and So there was an interesting thing that happened back in the summer of 1975, and I just asked my dad if he would share that story with us tonight. All right. Now, what we're going to do is we are going to have to pause right there in order to uh, to pay some bills. So if uh, you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear more uh, regarding uh, Bill Bright and uh, Lauren Cunningham and the uh, origins of the New Apostolic Reformation. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, be hearty, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage them, don't give a hoot, bring up, be hearty, yo ho. presents Church Day Select. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just... Angry, righteous, wrathful. The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think... I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. 
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the New Apostolic Reformation is a rotten tree with rotten theological fruit and a really bad mission. Stay tuned. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is uh, more of our look into kind of the roots and ideas of the New Apostolic Reformation as we listen to Gilman Hill regale us with his story about meeting uh, Lauren Cunningham and also talking about uh, the Seven Mountain Mandates that uh, Cunningham and Bill Bright had in common. Here we go. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, back at that time, uh, Lauren Cunningham was, uh, well, first of all, I met uh, Bill Bright at the airport. Uh, he was coming to uh, the uh, seminar, the teaching program that they had up at Colorado State University <coughs> each fall in August. And uh, he, uh, he says, I would like to meet Lauren Cunningham. Could you arrange that? So I called over to 
Why Raymond says, where can I find Lauren Cunningham? And they said, well, he's somewhere up in the high mountains of, uh, outside of Durango, and, uh, and uh, he's in a, in a tent under a fire lookout area, and uh, we have no way of communicating with him. So the, he said, but you, you know, if you, if you really urgent need him, I'll send a, a man up there on horseback to the fire lookout, and I'll go uh, get his direction of where to find Lauren's tent. So uh, this uh, man on horseback went up there, <coughs> found Lauren Cunningham in a tent all by himself. He was alone. Actually, this was his getaway to seek the Lord. What did the Lord want him to do? Was to get away for several days in the mountains and uh, then just just be with the Lord. And uh, when he said, uh, when uh, he he felt there was an urgency of coming down, so he came down out of the mountains. And uh, a friend of ours, Charlie uh, uh, Green, had a Cessna airplane, a little airplane, and flew him over to uh, Colorado. Well, first he called me and says, I'll, I'll, I'm coming over with Charlie on his plane. Uh, meet me at the airport and take me up to see Lauren uh, Bill Bright. And uh, they did, and at that time, remember that uh, Lauren uh, Cunningham, when he came forward to meet Bill, shake hands with Bill Bright, he took out of his coat pocket a envelope. Under the back of the envelope, he uh, had written, uh, these are the, the seven spheres of influence uh, that we need to uh, develop. So now notice, uh, Lauren Cunningham, up on a mountain. The Lord told him, you know, he wanted to have some time with him alone up in the, in the mountains near Durango. And, uh, and so he comes down and says, this is what the Lord has shown me. It sounds like Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. Lauren Cunningham ascends the mountains of Durango and comes down, and he has the seven spheres of influence that the Lord wants us to address, to, to conquer, to fight for kind of thing. Hmm. The seven spheres of influence on his paper, Bill Bright being much better organized, he had a typewritten sheet that had the same outline, the same seven in the same sequence. Okay. So they're claiming that, uh, you know, so Bill Bright wants to meet with Lauren Cunningham. Cunningham's up on the mountain. He comes down. He's got this, the, a revelation from the Lord, seven uh, spheres of influence. Bill Bright has the exact same list in the same order, the same sequence. It must be a miracle from God. This must be God speaking, telling us the uh, seven spheres of influence he wants us to conquer. That's what this story is. It's a claim to the miraculous, um, you know, direct revelation kind of thing. They had the same seven in the same sequence, and uh, they, they were just marveling at how could they, each individually, far away with no communication with one another, uh, come up with the same uh, seven items in the right sequence. And uh, I, uh, tonight I, I was trying to reconstruct in my mind just what were the sequence of those seven items for each person. And I almost got late coming here because Lauren had just called me back this evening, a little after six, and uh, says, uh, yeah, I remember that so clearly. I can give you those of 
my mind at any time is as the number one that the Lord gave me and Bill Bright had the same was families. That meant YWAM, FI, FFI, and people dealing with families would be the number one thing that he had. Second was church and religion. Third was schools and education. Fourth was media, print, radio, television. And the fifth was celebration with art, entertainment, and sports. Football players love that, of putting the sports up there. Then the economy, science, technology, and the production and sale of science technology. And the seventh one was government, all three branches, the, the uh, president, the legislature, and the courts. And uh, the, uh, the interesting thing is that, uh, that that sequence was the same printout on both those people. So this is an, sort of the ultimate in confirmation that God, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, would speak to the, each of the three of them and have the same identical ones. And uh, Lauren just uh, called me when uh, I was waiting, planning to get here early, and we almost got late, because he says that was the most sensational thing he'd ever witnessed in his life, was uh, a, a confirmation. Now, he says uh, that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't speak to individuals without confirmation. So many of you may well have uh, the Holy Spirit speak to you, and you don't have a confirmation, and that's okay. He says, encourage everybody to seek the Lord. Then you don't need to go through the, 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 the detail of this uh, thing that they had. I want to mention one more thing of, in the name of God, registering it at the courthouse. And, and uh, we're now engaged in uh, some patents. And the patents that we're filing have filed, uh, were clearly the result of revelation. So I feel God given me that specific revelation. It was reduced to a patent, and I wanted to file in the patent office the, uh, the inventor. As so he received a revelation from God, and he's getting a patent for it? What? Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they'd never heard of that. And our patent attorney says, there's no way that you can uh, get that in the patent office. They, they'll just throw it out as a, as a wild person. And uh, so he says, you can, you can be the legal uh, official uh, representative of God, and thus we're an ambassador of God. And, uh, and as an ambassador of God, we can, we can sign in behalf of God without uh, having him sign or having the patent office accept it. So that, that is now in force, and, and the patents that are, are being filed now are really uh, something the Lord has given in, in uh, detail that have tremendous economic priority. You notice uh, I tend to focus on the science technology thing. I, if I were writing this thing out, I'd put that science technology first, but, <laughs> but, not, but not God. He put families first. So family is the first and highest priority of God, and all these others are subsequent priorities. 
All right, so there you go. A little bit long-winded, but you get the point. Um, apparently, the claim is that the seven mountain mandate, you know, the seven spheres of influence, this is a result of direct revelation from God to Lauren Cunningham and Bill Bright. Um, and yes, it gets wrapped up into the theological stream created by William Brannan. And so you, you, you kind of get the idea of what's really going wrong there. And so what we're going to listen to now, um, this is a video called Reclaim Seven Mountains of Culture. And it will begin first with, uh, with Lauren Cunningham explaining how God gave him this direct revelation of these seven mountains. And then the narrator is going to explain what these seven mountains are and how the church needs to be about conquering them. Here we go. It was August 1975, and the Lord had given me that day a list of things that I had never thought about before. He said, this is the way to reach America and nations for God. In every city of the world, an unseen battle rages for dominion over God's creation and the souls of people. This battle is fought on seven strategic fronts, looming like mountains over the culture to shape and influence its destiny. Over the years, the church slowly retreated from its place of influence on these mountains, leaving a void now filled with darkness. When we lose our influence, we lose the culture. And when we lose the culture, we fail to advance the kingdom of God. What? This doesn't sound anything like uh, the Great Commission or what's taught in Scripture and like even the book of Acts. Don't you think if the way in which Christianity ultimately was able to really overthrow the uh, Roman Empire was because they uh, reclaimed seven mountains? Yeah, no, I don't think so. A generation stands in desperate need. It's time to fight for them and take back these mountains of influence. Yeah, all we got to do is preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins, make disciples, baptizing, teaching, you know, things like that. Mountain of government, where evil is either restrained or endorsed. The mountain of education, where truths or lies about God and His creation are taught. The mountain of media, where information is interpreted through the lens of good or evil. The Mountain of Arts and Entertainment, where values and virtue are celebrated or distorted. The Mountain of Religion, where people worship God in spirit and truth or settle for a religious ritual. The Mountain of Family, where either the blessing or a curse is passed on to successive generations. Uh, what? Where a blessing or a curse is? Huh. And the one mountain they all depend on. The mountain that fuels and funds all the other mountains. Wait, I thought the mountain of family was the most important one. Hmm. The mountain of business. We're uh, the mountain of business. Apparently, the God changed his mind. Family's no longer the most important. The mountain of business is the important one. Got it. Build for the glory of God or the glory of man. Where resources are consecrated for the kingdom of God or captured for the powers of darkness. Those who lead this mountain control what influences our culture. The last 50 years, we've seen the most rapid moral decline in history. 
the culture we inherited from our forefathers is disintegrating before our eyes. What kind of world are we leaving for our children and grandchildren? As long as the business mountain is held by enemies of the gospel, funding for the other mountains will always be constrained, and any efforts to advance the kingdom of God will be hindered. Imagine God's... Now, just with what you're hearing here, start to connect the dots. Over and again, we've noted here at Fighting for the Faith that people are out there doing supposedly Christian ministry, and the messages that they're keying in on is the importance for Christians to succeed in the business realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those Christians out there supposedly doing ministry to uh, basically encourage you to find your purpose and your destiny as it relates to the world of business, they are, in a sense, and in some cases it's not even a sense, flat out, they're doing it flat out, promoting uh, the Christian takeover of the mountain of business. That's what's really going on. Reclaiming their cities and government, in the arts and entertainment, in the media, in education, in the family, in religious influence, but only limited by their imagination and not by a lack of finances. It's possible, but first, we must take back the mountain of business. God's move to take this mountain back has already begun. Thousands and thousands of business leaders in every major city across the nation are filling arenas to learn from business leaders and hear the gospel of Christ. 90% of people working in the marketplace believe in God. 78% believe spirituality and business mix. 70% say that because of their faith, they find meaning and purpose in life. There are over 56 million Bible-believing Christians working in the marketplace. A vast army of God waiting to be truly engaged in the battle. Yet this strategic army and battlefront has largely been left ignored by the church. More than 90% of church members do not feel they are being equipped or trained by the church to apply biblical faith in their day-to-day life. Uh, What? The business mountain is so strategic. This is Oz Hillman. That is the place of influence. When you look at culture, so much of culture is defined by what happens in business. If we would use the... Now this is Lauren Cunningham again. ...for the world, to bless the world. And bless it not only to distribute to the needy that which they need. When you bring economy and economic benefit to a nation or a culture, uh, then you have influence in that culture. People, as they're transformed, who will transform all the spheres of society. It is time to reclaim the seven mountains and bring... Time to reclaim the seven mountains. Sounds like an alternate uh, mission to the Great Commission. Doesn't it sound like that to you? I mean, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded. And now, apparently, God has given a mandate. It's time for us to reclaim the seven mountains. Yeah, this sounds like a totally different mission altogether and one that gets us off of the Great Commission. ...of God back into our culture. So there you go. We're supposed to, you know, put something about the, you know, put God back into our culture. Now notice, if you question or challenge the Seven Mountains mandate... 
Well, you're challenging God. This is what God wants you. If you're a Christian, you need to be out there conquering one of these seven mountains. God has revealed this to the prophets, you know, Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham. So that's kind of weird. Now, we're going to only be able to scratch the surface, if you would, a little bit here on uh, one of the next people that we're going to be hearing from. And that is C. Peter Wagner. We're going to play a couple of bites from C. Peter Wagner just to introduce you to him. We'll have to circle back and do a little bit more uh, C. Peter Wagner, uh, you know, kind of like an installment two of this information, which I don't think it'll be a full episode of Fighting for the Faith, but you kind of get the idea. And just want to give you, uh, you know, just listen to this introduction. This is C. Peter Wagner introducing himself at Todd Bentley's apostolic installation. Yeah, listen in. My name is Peter Wagner, and I'm president of Global Harvest Ministries based in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I have served the body of Christ in apostolic ministry for many years, and currently I preside over the International Coalition of Apostles, which brings together over five... Um, the uh, Office of Apostles closed. Biblically, ain't nobody can fill that. ...hundred recognized apostles. I have the honor of being assigned to preside over this momentous occasion, and I am humbled as I approach the task with an enormous sense of awe. Holy Spirit, I invite your presence, your power, and your direction. Amen? This is a ceremony celebrating the formal apostolic alignment of Todd Bentley. <laughs> the formal formal apostolic alignment of Todd, Todd Bentley? Really? Um, Todd Bentley is, yeah, apostle? Yeah, no. You know, con artist? Yes. Uh, apostle? No, not like not at all. So, I mean, that kind of gives, you know, at least get your toes in the water as to uh, what C. Peter Wagner is about. But I think one of the more interesting things that C. Peter Wagner has said, he has actually said on an interview that he did with um, the uh, the public radio folks. Uh, 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 Terry uh, Gross uh, was interviewed by Terry Gross on um, a national public radio and uh, I want you to hear what he says regarding the uh, return of Jesus. This is an integral piece of uh, New Apostolic Reformation theology, and that is is that Jesus isn't going to come back until the church conquers the world, Seven Mountains style, if you would. Listen in. My guest is C. Peter Wagner, a leading apostle in the New Apostolic Reformation, a Christian movement that wants dominion over politics, business, education, and the arts. Wants dominion, yeah. So one of the things that you are expecting, and I don't know when, is the return of Jesus and the end times, yes? Correct. What are you expecting? Like, what what do you think will happen? Okay, now, what I think... Uh, will happen is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. Gospel of the kingdom. And by the way, in NAR talk, gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel of salvation. You're going to hear that from uh, Lance Wall now. That we will begin, as uh, Jesus said to his disciples, we begin making disciples of nations, 
We'll see the values of the kingdom of God spreading. I think the world is going to get better and better, not worse and worse. And um, I so think so you, you that, don't believe that, in the rapture and the tribulations. I used to, but now but I don't. I, I don't see how it fits now mm-hmm. into what what God is showing us. That's a good question, isn't it? So I don't know. I don't believe in that. All right. So yeah, just just kind of yeah, if you would uh, whet your appetite for what it is that we're going to be hearing in our next installment. No, no clue as to when that's going to come out on Fighting for the Faith soon, though. But uh, what we're going to do to round out our episode of Fighting for the Faith today, focusing in on the roots and ideas of the uh, and uh, major luminaries within the New Apostolic Reformation, we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Lance Walnow on the Seven Mountains. So uh, stay tuned for that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, Lance Walnow preaching on the Seven Mountains. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. 
Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the embassy church the embassy church we're going to be listening to lance well now as he preaches on the seven mountains this is a core theological concept within the new apostolic reformation which is an amalgam of the uh, latter rain movement Mixed with the Pentecostal charismatic and then the direct revelation of the uh, seven mountains given to Bill Bright. And um, yeah, you got the idea. So we just did all that history. I don't know how else to prepare you for what it is that you're about to hear. We'll uh, critique it along the way. Personally, I'm uber creeped out by what it is that you're about to hear because this, I think, is a total competing alternate um, Great Commission, which gets the Christianity, well, heading in the wrong direction, trying to conquer the wrong thing. Of course, if you challenge this, you're challenging God because all of this came via direct revelation. So let me back off on the music, and now, without any further ado, here is Lance Wilnow and the Seven Mountains, and he's being introduced by the uh, pastor of the Embassy Church. Here we go. I'm going through security at an airport, and it happens to be this very belt here. And because I'm going through security, they asked me to take my belt off. And I take my belt off, and the guy at security says, oh, you've got one of these belts. And you see, I didn't want to be left out. So I said, yeah, I do. I do. And I thought, what kind of belt is that? He says, they're pretty expensive, aren't they? I couldn't remember. Didn't know whether I got a hot deal on Young Street or where I got that from, you know? So I said, uh, yeah, I like the belt. And so he takes my buckle and he pulls it and turns it and twists it. And he says, how do you like using the brown side? Oh, oh, yeah, I like the brown side too. Inside, I'm going, sweet. (laughs) I was just using black, and I had black and brown. I didn't know what was there. 
That's what this man does. He'll take your belt off, turn it around and say, how do you like that? And you'll say, oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah. Lance Walno, come, 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 come. There we are. I'll tell you, what a wild house. Place is crazy, I'll tell you. But it's alive. I brought a few things to share with you. A brief time together. How many of you are here for the first time, never heard me before, weren't here for the equipping tools weekend so that we can just get a feel for it? Just put your hands up there really high. Okay, starting over there. Where were you? <laughs> just line up over here. All right, well, let's, I, I think I can summarize, or as one, one of my southern trainees put it, I think I can capsize everything I said yesterday. We're living in the, uh, the most unusual time. Here's the w one key revelation. I'm just going to repeat it. It's, it's going to be helpful for you. We won't be able to go in a lot of depth, but I want to give you a, a perspective on something. I believe that the church, when we talk about this church, as you know, the most exciting time to be alive is right now, I think we need to really put handles on some of what we're really saying. Because what I've learned is that mastery in any subject is the art of distinctions. The more specific and numerous the distinctions you can make on any subject, the more mastery you have on it. So, for instance, if, uh, you know, from where I'm at, when it's winter, we just say it's snowed. Now, it might be wet snow, in which case it's a little bit heavier to move, or it might be recent snow because it just fell down. But, you know, the Eskimos have about 20 words for snow, 20 words for snow. That means that they have numerous and greater distinctions because they're around snow all the time. They got wet snow, dry snow, recent snow, old snow, um, continuing snow. You know, they don't eat the yellow snow. What, they, they, and they have one word for all of that. But I don't know. So I'm driving by these cows. I was with Peter Wagner, Dr. Peter Wagner. He's one of my one of my mentors, and I didn't know that his... Notice the connection to see Peter Wagner, the guy who claims to be an apostle, who's uh, presiding over apostles, including the apostle Todd Bentley. Doctorate. Dr. Peter Wagner. I mean, you know, he's a fuller theological seminary professor, author of 20 books, but his doctorate is in cows. And it's a strange thing. It's agriculture and cows. So I made the stupid mistake of trying to, you know, observe going by farmland. I said, well, look, there's a cow. And he said, that's not a cow, that's a steer, that's a this, there's a Holstein, there's a this. He goes down a list of 20 different types and categories of what was walking around in that field. And I thought, well, you know what the truth is? We all can't be specialists in everything, but we ought to be specialists in the area of our own destiny. When it comes to you standing before Jesus, what? You should not be at the C-spot run stage of enlightenment. When you're born again, the most important thing, obviously the most important thing in your life is that you get saved. But I mean, if you're saved, what's the most important thing after that? That you do the thing he called you to do. And I want you to upgrade the... Notice the, uh, the, the theology of the destiny thingy that you're supposed to be receiving from God. Uh -huh. Now you can see, do you think the Purpose Driven Life book fits in with this? 
Do you think it's um, a coincidence that C. Peter Wagner and uh, Rick Warren work together on, uh, I think, Rick Warren's doctorate? I mean, you, you get, you see what's going on here? There's a theology that's all working together here, and there's lots of moving pieces. Distinctions in your life regarding mastering destiny, because there's no other subject that is more important for you. And what I've found is if you really want to enjoy more of God, more of his presence, more of his power, more of his favor, then it isn't so much a set of principles or ideas or experiences. You know what it is? Jesus said that if any man loves me, he'll serve me. And where I am, there my servant will be. And if anybody is really where I am, then my father will honor him. What passage of scripture is that? You could put it this way. When you really love him, you show up in the activity he is inviting you into. And when you go where God wants you to go, where he already is, his favor gets multiplied on you to attract to you everything you need to accomplish the assignment. He- yeah, which biblical text is that from again? Because what you're describing is nowhere taught in scripture. You into. And now suddenly you've got stories of angels, stories of this, healings and interventions, and a thousand are falling at your left, ten thousand at your right. What saved David's butt in so many battles wasn't the fact that he was a harpist and he had a good worship life. What saved him was the fact that he had Samuel's vows prophetically on him to protect him because he was being positioned to become the next king. Oh, man. Wow, this is bad. And what we want to really grab hold of is the clearer you are on the distinctions of destiny, the clearer you are on the distinctions of where your face is in the future. Why is that important? Because you war, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that went before you, that by them you might be able to do what? Carve a pathway into manifesting what the Father called you to do. Warring according to prophecy is going to... Warring according to prophecy. We didn't have time to, to get into their theology of warring, but the, this war theology is a big thing in C. Peter Wagner's way of thinking. On a whole new significance for those of us that have been through years of the prophetic, and in a sense, we're now going back and recapturing a lot of pieces from our personal history and raising the level of perception and application to a much refined science. Where is your face in the future? Your unfinished destiny is your greatest argument with death. My friend, I have a friend of mine named Michael Kratz, who's a senator in Georgia. He was called a prophetic voice. A buddy Kim prophesied over him once in an audience. The guy was a real estate manager and thinking about running for office. Here's an important key about destiny. Those thoughts and desires that continuously come across the screen and canvas of your imagination that excite your heart, that make you wonder, oh, how could that be? I'm getting too old. When will that be? I don't know anybody. Those thoughts that come across the screen of your imagination after you're a believer are previews of the desire that heaven has for your life. Yeah, again, do you have a biblical text to back that up? They're not just random thoughts. They're actually... It's what, what in the Greek word is called sonar. It's the Holy Spirit going out into the future and bringing back an image of where the Father wants you to start aiming. Really, where in the Scripture does it talk about Holy Spirit sonar? I'd like to see that text, please. So this guy, Michael Cross, is in the audience in Conyers, Georgia. Kim goes and says, sir, stand up. The Lord has his word for you and, he's like, and your wife. Next, you stand up, both of you. The word of the Lord is you're going to have a son. Your son's going to be named Caleb. And you're, he's going to walk in the same political steps as his father because he's called you to a political office. Well, that was confirmation, and that's an important, important concept, confirmation. We all know that word. How many know that word, confirmation? 
Oh, well, here's the unique upgrade on that, double confirmation. Double confirmation is when God's... Double confirmation, wow. I mean, is that found in the same biblical passage as the super Shemitah? Something to you, and another source comes along randomly into your life that knows nothing about what you're thinking and confirms it for you. So he was thinking this thing already, and was thinking it was God, and then the prophet comes, and boom, the double confirmation happens. That, that, that's, a, that's like a dream that happens twice for Pharaoh means it's definite. So double confirmation, or tr- some of us have had triple and quadruple, and we still haven't acted yet because we're not so sure what God's calling us to do. Quick story says, Michael Kratz gets up, says that's it. He moves from his real estate business out to the campaign trail. He's on the campaign trail. Uh, within the course of uh, the 24 months that he's getting himself registered as a, as a and run for office and getting his political affiliations together, his money together, he adopts a son, son named Caleb. He's got that part down. The boy is now like, you know, two years old. He adopts him, has this son. He's running for political office. Boom, drops dead of a heart attack outside of a Holiday Inn in Conyers, Georgia. Ambulance comes up, got the videotape. While they're trying to resuscitate them, they probably have the videotape for insurance purposes to make sure that they did everything right. No one can say they didn't do anything right. So they're trying to get them at least to have a heartbeat before they take them back to the hospital. Can't get a heartbeat registered. So 15 minutes there, boom, put them in the back like a slab in the back of the ambulance, take them down 15 minutes to the emergency room. It's a half an hour. Work on them for 15 minutes in the emergency room. The doctor's calling his wife and say, we can't do anything. 45 minutes and no, no heartbeat, no breath. But his driver's license says he's an organ donor, and we just want you to be able to sign off because we, we believe that his, his life can have meaning. His body parts can give hope to someone else. Well, Phyllis is not ready for this. So Phyllis is in agreement with his unfinished destiny, which is another principle. You want to have at least one other person. Really, a, a principle of being in agreement with somebody's unfinished destiny. Right. Yeah. So that means if you drop dead of a heart attack, you can be in your your wife can be in agreement with your unfinished destiny, and apparently you can get resurrected. I get the feeling that's where this story is heading. Covenant with you to go to war to fulfill the assignment that God gave you. Clarity is power. You want to know what God called you to do, at least enough so that somebody else can be in agreement with it. So Phyllis goes over and she says, Michael. The word of the Lord says that you're going to have a son. Your son's going to be named Caleb, and he's going to walk in the same steps as his father in politics, and we're going to raise him together. Together, Michael. Together. That means you've got to be with me, and we've got a son. And the word of the Lord says you're going, he's going to be in politics, and you're not in politics yet. And we're supposed to raise him together. So she's prophesying what God said, and she's saying what the Lord said. And her argument with this contradiction is what God said was supposed to happen. You all with me on that? Well, as she's doing this, the doctors are looking at each other, and they realize that they have a Pentecostal whack job here in the emergency room. <laughs> but, you know, people have different ways of coping with death, and religious delirium is one of them. So the, uh, they call security. The security guy comes in. He's standing by, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. And she's prophesying away. The word of the Lord says she's trying to get that word of the Lord. The word of the Lord said you're going to have a son, and your son's name is Caleb, and you're going to walk. He's going to walk in a political office. Well, they, now she's telling me her version of the story. They're pulling her off of his body. It, it hurts her because they're pulling her arm, and she reaches out and grabs his pent leg. So she's getting pulled like this, prophesying. <laughs> Finally, she realizes she's going to win this thing. So she just cuts to the chase, puts her hands together like Elijah, and says, Michael, come back into your body now. And his body, his spirit goes right back into his body. 
And all of a sudden, beep, 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 diodes are flying, beeps are going on, the doctor's whoa, 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 pushing out of the way, what's going on? And there's always one person, always remember this, when there's a miracle happening, there's one Dr. Kevorkian in the room to bless you. It's just the way witchcraft is. You know, it's like something has to hit your mind and bring confusion just when God gives you a breakthrough. Well, here comes Dr. Kevorkian. He turns around and he goes, I wouldn't get my hopes up if I were you. He's been without a heartbeat and oxygen to the brain for 45 minutes. We'll be fortunate if we can sustain him in a lifelong coma. Phyllis right away is thinking, uh-oh, what did I do? She's a young Christian. Maybe she shouldn't have done this. You know, and then she's thinking maybe he's going to be in a wheelchair with, like, tubes in his nose. That's from God's going to be teaching her something. Uh, you know, she's got all these kind of horrific, you know, potential scenarios. And uh, they wheel him off because he, does, he is too alive to take body parts out of. <laughs> what else do you do? Park him somewhere. So they park him in the, wherever they put people like that situation. And, um, and Phyllis... It goes into the room, and she's like, it's confused. They've got a prayer thing going on, a young Christian. And the doctor comes in and says, uh, and then Dr. Kevorkian gives her this update. He says, Mrs. Kratz, not only has your husband not had oxygen in the brain for 45 minutes, but even if he ever recovered, he would lose half of his lifetime memory. It would be erased. At least, she goes, well, how long? Because 25 or 30 years. Now, this is the honest truth. She's thinking, he, she, she was saved before him, and he was such a pain-in-the-butt husband before he got saved. She was going to divorce him if he didn't get saved. And she's thinking, if he goes back to being that guy, this is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? If he loses memory about he got saved, I'm going to have to go back to what he was like before he got saved. What's that going to be like? But then, this is the amazing thing. What was worse than that? Phyllis told me. I got the interview on tape. You want to see it? I filmed it. What's worse than that? She said, I'm a beautician. I'm a stylist. It's when it occurred to me that he's going to think I'm 30 years younger when he opens his eyes. <laughs> and that was intolerable. Now, him not being saved, she could almost live with. But him thinking she was 30 years younger, when he opens his eyes and she's not she goes into some serious intercession right now because she's, she's praying. And while she's praying, he comes out of the coma. And he says, where is my son, Caleb? Which means his memory was completely restored right up to the present moment. True story. He goes on and gets elected four times, state senate. I said, what happened when you were out of your body, Michael? He said, well, he said, I've got to be careful what I talk about it. I said, because they started calling me all kinds of names in the Senate in, uh, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. He said, but I went to a place called Paradise. I was there. He said, I was there 45 minutes. I was someplace. I'm going to tell you where I was. I was there. I was in a place. It was like a transition place between this place, Paradise. Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in Paradise. Well, Paradise was evidently relocated. It's actually in third heaven. It's there in a heavenly place. And it's like a transition zone right into this place called heaven. He could see the heaven, the eternal heaven right there. This is there. And it's kind of like he wanted to go there. And he's telling Jesus, look, uh, why can't you bring Phyllis and Caleb here? This is perfect. I mean, it's like being in vacation. You know, it's like being in heaven. So uh, bring them here. rather than, And the Lord shows him something. The Lord shows him like this body of water, lake, and says, why don't you see something, Michael? Shows him this body of water, shows him all this, these spheres, these circles of, of uh, these look, almost look like I- islands in this water. And then there's this shaking. 
And he notices something, that there are certain places that aren't being shaken. And when those places aren't being shaken, uh, people are being drawn to those places that aren't being shaken. And the Lord says, those are my people. Now, this sounds like crazy theology, but I'm just going to say to you what Michael said, Jesus said. And then they have the views of this program. So notice, this isn't based on Scripture. This is what Jesus said to a man who apparently was dead for 45 minutes and then came back. Like subject to editing later. But, I mean, here's what he said. Jesus tells him, that's my people ruling in their kingdom. Now, what that means is when you're called to the kingdom of God and God gives you a sphere of assignment, you are administrating his kingdom under your authority. And so as far as God is concerned, you should be ruling it like it was your kingdom because it's delegated under your authority. In other words, you're, David so identified with the sheepfold that when a lion and a bear came to kill a sheep, he didn't say, what the heck, is a sheep and it's my dad's business anyway. It was like personal. He took it like, you don't touch that sheep while I'm here because it's my sheep. Even though he- so he was uh, protecting the sheep mountain. Got it for his dad. So they're ruling over their kingdom. And you know what it is? It means that somebody's going to get a revelation that the territory God gave you is yours to administrate as though it was your territory. Oh, this, this just passing through Christian mentality we got has us totally uninvested in the outcome of anything except someone getting saved. It's kind of like, well, we're just passing through. Well, you know what the problem with that is? Um, scripture says that we're sojourners and we're just passing through. I mean, it's not like Scripture doesn't say that. It does. Totally militates against the idea, Jesus said, of occupy till I come. Well, you're not occupying till he comes if you're preoccupied with when you go. Anyway, so the Lord turns to him. And I think it's at this point he shows him these like seven mountains or something like this. And show, one mountain is the mountain of government. He says, that's the mountain of government. And you're called to go into it because that's the assignment you've got. This connects to my earlier point, which is that being clear in your destiny is important because your destiny is your argument with death. So next thing you know, Michael hears his wife. In the name of Jesus, come back into your body now. Boom, boom, and he's back in his body with all the pain and all the dials going off and he's uncomfortable. Back in his That's the last memory he had. Jesus showing him that there was a mountain called government that he had to go into. Well, anyway, he said, I said, well, what else was there? He said, well, there's these six others, but I didn't know what they were. I only knew about the mountain of government. And I said, well, and now I'm honest. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. This- so notice this entire seven mountains thing, not based on anything in Scripture, based upon recent revelations given by the Holy Spirit and Jesus to people who've had, well, they've died and come back. Big story. I mean, other people just move on. Wasn't well, that a nice testimony? I was like, yeah, like the 700 Club. Well, that was a nice testimony. Move on to the next show. It's like, I'm thinking, no, I'm stuck with this thing. There's too many pieces in this that intrigue me. One of which is the power of an unfinished assignment to be able to reverse death itself if you can have somebody in agreement. And Jesus himself is in agreement with you not showing up at the wrong time. Don't think heaven's going to throw a party if you're there early. It's like, what are you doing here? I mean, not for nothing. We're going to spend all eternity together. I'm looking forward to it. But don't you have something you're supposed to do before you get here? According to Jesus... The Son of Man is as somebody who has servants, and to each of them was given authority, and to every man his work. That means you've been given authority to do something. The clearer you are in the something you're... Yeah, which biblical text are you exegeting again? 
to do, the more you're tapping into the fun of the walk and doing it. So anyway, so I talked to Michael, and I'm saying, okay, you got this one mountain called government. What are the other six? Well, that's when I run into Lauren Cunningham, and he tells me a story about him and Bill Bright. How the two yeah, there we go. Now the story of Lauren Cunningham and Bill Bright retold by Lance Wallnow. Neat. And, uh, and then they have, a, they have their encounter, and, um, and the two of them discover that they have, each of them has this vision for seven spheres, seven world kingdoms, seven mind molders. They call them different things, but they're basically seven spheres. Well, I heard that, and I said, my generation is going to have to have new language. We have to have greater specificity. Mastery is in the details. It's being able to have greater distinctions. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go with seven mountains, whatever you guys call is what you call it. But nobody grabbed it. No one grabbed it in the 80s. No one grabbed it in the 90s. And it wasn't until uh, guys like me started popularizing this thing in the you know, 19, around the year 2000. I said, look, I, you know, you can, all the revival in the world, I'm in it. Count me in. But it's got to go somewhere. And if it's only going to go to us having exotic experiences with third heaven, the world is going to get worse and worse. And unfortunately, we are bundled on board their ship. So unless we start taking territory and bringing heaven to earth into a domain that's a little bit wider than just our own personal visitations with the supernatural, we will watch economies go down and wars happen where they don't need to because we're there and can administrate the kingdom. Does that make sense? So I don't want any unnecessary suffering or pain. So, um, you know, I, I, I prefer if I could to have peace and prosperity and I want my nation to have it and I want my hemisphere to have it. So I started looking at this thing. I said, Lord, what's... What is, the, what is, give me handles for tra transformation that is simple because the gospel commission is twofold. Mark's gospel, go preach, make disciples. Matthew's commission, slightly different. What's Matthew's commission? Go teach, disciple nations. And what I realized is while we were focusing so ardently on revival for the last decade and a half, the devil came along and discipled our countries. Think about it. What? Because one declaration is to preach with signs and wonders. The other declaration is to teach and to make disciples. And while we've been focusing on heaven coming to earth, well, let's get that straight. We have our church conferences, church gathering. We're looking for heaven to come down and reign here. The assumption is if heaven comes down here, everything else is going to be affected. But that's a mistake. That's so he, he was highlighting the church mountain. So if heaven comes down to the church mountain, they think that that means it's going to impact all the other mountains, and apparently that's a mistake. Now, he is now the expert of, you know, the uh, the meaning and significance and execution of this new revelation from God. have to make better distinctions. Because the truth of the matter is, your having more of Jesus doesn't automatically mean your company is going to prosper, unless you can translate how having more of Jesus can make you a better, effective employee that can solve problems in your own business. Does that make sense? Being saved is the key, number one issue to get you to heaven. But saving a city or the soul of a nation isn't done, catch this, by bottling people up in the salvation experience. What you have to do is unpack who bottles people up in the salvation experience. Where are you getting this? Well, from the salvation experience out into the world where God called them to occupy territory. The gospel of salvation will get you to heaven. The gospel of the kingdom will get heaven to earth. 
And if we're not doing the gospel of salvation... Whoa, whoa, so notice, two different gospels. Gospel of salvation gets you to heaven. Gospel of the kingdom brings heaven to earth. What? And the gospel of the kingdom, then we're not punching with both hands. So here's what happens. We got, we got the preaching, the gospel with signs and wonders, and we have revival and visitation here. But then the teach, which is making disciples of nations. What happens if we don't do that aggressively? I got a buddy of mine, Gordon Pennington, bright man, chief branding officer for Tommy Hilfiger, brands the whole fashion line. And here's what he says. He says, Lance says, I'll tell you what, you got a 19-year-old son, Carl. I met him. He's a good kid. Here's the interesting thing. You let me loose in his bedroom for like five minutes. I'll forage around, look at the clothes that's in his closet, the posters that are on his wall, the music he's listening to, and the apps that are on his iPad and the games he's playing. I'll look at those five things, and I will tell you who the five Madison Avenue consultants are who discipled your son while you're trying to get him into a revival. I said, what? He said, I can introduce you to the people who know how to disciple the next generation. And, and you're, you're, you see, this is the problem. While we've been focusing on revival, the enemy's been focusing on systemically changing culture through the infusion of ideas that gradually and progressively militate against the simplicity of the gospel. And if we don't go out as salt and light in contact with the warm, cutting edge of where those ideas are, then we aren't engaging culture at all. We're simply watching the ship sink while we judge it. Notice, um, this is what we call a plausible-sounding argument, and this is exactly what uh, Paul warns us against, by the way, in uh, Colossians chapter 2. Let me read it for you so you kind of get what's going on there. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So yeah, do not be um, deluded with plausible-sounding arguments, which we're hearing quite a lot of here. Oh, and by the way, one of the things I did not address, and I'll address it now, is he, he keeps saying, Jesus said, occupy till I come. Well, let's read it from a good translation, Luke 19.11, and you'll see what's going on here. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Yeah, one translation says, occupy until I come. But really, this, the, the idiom here is engage in business until I come. And this is in the context of a parable, not something that Jesus gave as a command to the disciples right before he ascends to heaven. So, you, yeah, he, this guy is really slick and duplicitous. We continue. Salt, by its very nature, has to come in contact with what's decaying 
in order for it to slow it down. Salt, and I know that salt is a metaphor for making for thirst, but the truth is in the Middle East, salt was the way in which you packed meat so that you slowed down decay. So if you wanted to be able to eat something, you'd pack it with salt. Salt is the influence of the Christian that slows down the decay of conscience in the culture. And what we have, if you want to get specific about it, is we have culture under massive decay of conscience, which means they no longer know what is right and what is wrong. It'd be okay if they stayed there. But the problem is the nature of this thing is it wants to gobble up you with it. Uh, what? Believers push back is when they are affected by what's going on. What we really need to do is be proactive and shift culture for the whole nation. Make sense so far? So I'm going to put some handles on this to make it real simple. The church over here actually is the place which gets invaded. Now, what's happening when you're having powerful worship, 24-hour prayer and stuff like that? Is there a relevance to that in your city? Now, watch this. You better believe it. See, what you're doing is you're establishing an atmosphere over the heavens, which is why you have such success gathering leaders. Because, you see, effective worship, corporate agreement, territorial church presence has the ability to, to pray into and shift the heavens over a territory. Where are you getting this from the Bible? Here's the problem. Very simple problem. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The problem is the gates are not located over the church. The gates, plural, are located wherever there's a center of influence where ideas can permeate and shift. Oh, who knew? There's seven gates and seven mountains. No way. Not found in the Bible. Plausible sounding argument, though. A culture. What that means is the church that God is building has got to be put in proximity of where the gates are. And the gates are in some places where the church isn't showing up. We got gates over the church. Yes, definitely. We got warfare. Every pastor could talk about the warfare they had to build and sustain the church. Our mistake is we think that's the only gate that's in town. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates, plural, of hell will not be able to prevail against it. So where are the multiple gates? Well, we're finding out when you, uh, when you have elections and you have laws that are formed, those gates, you better have believers showing up at those gates. Now, here's the problem. You could be praying over there in the church mountain, but if you don't have a champion rise, raising up within the sphere of government, you don't have delegated representation for the kingdom of God, and God has given that authority to man. And so if man doesn't use the authority properly, then the devil uses it. So in other words, we have to have the church show up in government. Does that make sense? What happens is that I talked to Gordon. I said, so who's been discipling my kids? He said, for the most part, it's media and it's arts. It's the singers that are singing, the lyrics that they've got. It's the artists that are raised up. It's the fashion styles of the girls that everybody's ooing and aahing over. And all that stuff has an amazing bombardment effect on teenagers because they're around their peer group. They're around unsaved kids at school. And the whole collective pressure of the peer group and what they're listening to gets on your kids. And your kids want to be hip and not be ignorant. So they're kind of into the same thing and whether they like it or not. In other words, you have to raise kids that are going to be exposed to the world no matter what anyway, unless you put them away on an Amish farm. So I'm amazed that my daughter's 14, pure as a driven snow, raised with me, going to church, hanging by myself. She can recite every song on the radio that I never play in the house. I'm serious. That's when I realized Gordon's right. Somebody's gotten into her head and it wasn't me. But that's the problem. Well, guess what? The artists, 
and the songs and the singers and the studios, those are the arts and media mountains. And those upside-down horses, those are gates. Financial, business. You don't think business mountain is a, is a gateway? Economics controls the spigot on every one of those mountains. Remember, Michael got this word. Michael Crouch got the word on the government mountain, one mountain. What were the other six? The Lord showed me. Lauren Cunningham found them. Bill Bright found them. But for some reason, they never could get their own ministries to make the shift. Even to this day, they talk about it. But I popularized the message back for them again. The truth is, you know why? Once you're in the church mountain, it's hard to get out of it. You see everything through church mountain eyes. The second mountain that shapes culture is family. The third mountain is education. Here you go. Religion, family, education, government, the media, which is the spin machine for information, the artists and sports figures, the icons and heroes of your age, and then the business machinery. Those are the seven molders of culture. What happens when the church is, is uh, in its present condition? And this is like even my most advanced uh, peers frequently. What they've done is they've got supernatural signs, wonders, and glory all over this place here. Haven't really got a clue about how to unpack it over there. Does that make sense to you? Here's the mistake. If we only yeah, the mistake is this isn't found in Scripture. Supposedly based upon recent direct revelation and a lot of plausible sounding arguments, but none of them are biblical have more people saved, we can change the world, is a false logic. You know how I found that out? This is like the, one of the shocking things that CEOs, when I'm training this stuff, that they don't even know. So apparently if you get a whole bunch of people who are Christians, um, them bearing the fruit of the Spirit in mass out in society, apparently it's not going to have any impact on society at all. Right. Just CEOs are going, you've got to be kidding me, because they understand math. 3% of the U.S. population basically is strong advocates of same-sex marriage. So you've got 3%, not 70%, 3%. 3% would be strong with a, with a, uh, with a theme on same-sex marriage or, or a homosexual agenda. You've got 25% in the U.S. evangelical population registered voting conservatives. How is it that 3% of the population of the United States has had more influence discipling the United States than 25% of the United States, especially when it was done during the two most conservative Christian presidencies we ever had? Evidently, numbers isn't the key. This is the part where we've got to wake up. Because here's what we're thinking. We've got to pray. We've got to have revival. We've got to pray. We've got to get people saved. We've got to get the message out. We've got to get evangelism. We've got to have a crusade. We've got to have a college. We've got to get your friend's church. Truth is, if you have 3%, that's beating 25%. Moving your percentage up to 35% doesn't make you any stronger. You know why? Because the 3% have positional authority in those mountains that out-leverages disproportionately their own numbers. Ah, so they're, they're, they have the high ground on the mountain. And you see, we haven't taken the high ground. So they have disproportionate impact. <laughs> now we're learning how to do warfare, apparently. Hmm. Not really. Oh, wait a second. What does that mean? That means that at the top of these mountains are the high places. Everybody say high places. What that means is that a remnant, catch this, a remnant of what sociologists call elites, remnant elites, a minority of people in the top of the music industry control what music is played. I know that because my clients are like rock stars. I got clients that are entertainers. I've got people that I work with, and they'll tell you, 
you know, I say, you know, I've got to be really careful because they don't want me to have any lyrics about here, about Jesus over here, you know, and I've got to watch this thing over here. Because you've got 200 people that are controlling the movie industry in Hollywood. Between the producers, the guys that run the unions, and the bankers, there's only 200 people controlling the industry. And ironically, I'm Jewish in my background, but I'll tell you, 98% of those guys are Jewish, but they're not even Jewish conservative, they're Jewish unbelievers. A strange thing in America. They're influencing America. By the way, Jews in America have never been more than 3% of the population. And yet they've shaped arts, industry, the Supreme Court, law. There's not a field that has, in one sense or another, been influenced and in most places blessed by Jewish contribution in American culture. Never exceeded 3% of the population. Baptists have always outnumbered Jews. Well, what's the point? The point is a remnant can shape culture if a remnant is mobilized in the high places. So what's our problem? Our problem is this, our theology. Our theology, the devil's brilliant. You know what he's done? He's separated us from the culture so that what we've got is a theology of separation from, this is called the world, and so I don't want to be worldly. So I want to be spiritual, so I'm going to hang out and do all my stuff over here and only reluctantly go do little runs out there and come back over here, maybe because that's where I've got to make a living, but I'll put my money over here in God's stuff. What if all of that belongs to Jesus? What if the gospel message is go into all the world and preach the gospel means literally go into every system? What if Matthew's commission to teach means that you can go into those systems and teach God's way of doing things without sounding religious when you do it. What if you're allowed to go into all the world like a ninja sheep? What if, what if, again, notice, not biblical texts, no, just speculation and plausible-sounding arguments, which is what Paul warned us about in Colossians 2. Kind of sneak in. And start to pray in and take the glory you're carrying. Because, by the way, you've already got, like I said, if you've got places that are praying, they've already created openings in the heavens. What you have is a frustration in heaven because there's no soldiers advancing where the breakthrough's already possible. That's why I get testimonies all the time. I'm crazy testimonies. I got one last night. Kendra Tavs called me. She's uh, one of my students. She's the youngest apprentice Donald Trump ever had. She beat all the other people out on The Apprentice with Trump. She calls me and she says, look, it's amazing. She doesn't know how this happens except it's what I'm teaching about what God wants to do for his people. There's like these, you know, there's, there's Bailey's, there's other companies, these big companies are trying to bid on the most expensive, largest condo project in, uh, in like, I guess it's in like San Diego, $40 million condominium. And since she's got a real estate license, somebody wants to give it to her. She's up against these titan companies that want to get it. But the favor of God on God's people, if they will simply show up where the gates are, will move you very quickly because most believers aren't even thinking in terms of showing up in those places. They're thinking of survival. They're running from the system and watching CNN or the news and wringing their hands and praying instead of going into the system and rushing towards the giant like David did. So here's the new paradigm, and it's, it's powerful. The new paradigm is the breakthroughs in the atmosphere. Now, what? The new paradigm, the breakthroughs in the atmosphere, and he's preaching this in a church, apparently. 
None of this found in scripture. All of it claimed to come from direct revelation. Of course, he's like the expert now in the interpretation of that direct revelation. Yeah, none of this is scriptural. This is really, really creeping me out. Do is find people that are willing to go through in order to occupy territory. Make sense? It's in the atmosphere. That's why Pastor Doug excites me, his whole vision for what he wants to do. So what would this look like? The word ecclesia. Jesus said, I will build my church, my ecclesia. You know what the ecclesia was? This ought to excite you. The ecclesia was the gathering of wise decision makers at the gates of a city in order to determine the counsel of what comes in and what goes out that influences that city. Now think about this definition. I will build my ecclesia. My called out company of wise rulers who will gather at the gates where hell wants to operate and will determine what comes and what goes into their territory. I will build my government. Yeah, that is not what Jesus means when he says, I will build my church. Remnant. And they will sit at the gates where decisions are made, and what they bind will be bound, and what they loose will be loose, because I'm giving to that. Yeah, that's referring to the office of the keys and and sins, not business deals. Called out remnant, the keys to release my kingdom. You guys catching that? Oh, I caught it, and it's not what uh, what Jesus was saying to Peter at all. Right, this is a statement that's very controversial. First, first time around, it goes down like a rat sandwich, but here it is. The church is not the kingdom. We've put the two together, and that's why we park in the church mountains seeking revival. Because we've made the church the kingdom. as though if you're- Again, plausible sounding argument. Um- no clue what he's preaching from. Uh, do you recall a biblical text he's actually correctly handled? No. More revival, we can change the world. No. If you got more revival, you impregnate the church so it can go somewhere. But if the church doesn't have a vision to go anywhere, you have a whole lot of stillborn potential. The uh, impregnated church and stillborn potential. Right. Church is the body of Christ who is the authorized dealer to bring the kingdom. The, the authorized dealer to bring what words where the church doesn't go the kingdom doesn't show up so in the middle of stygian darkness in any continent in which begs the question what is the kingdom in his theology country in any backward system theologically or in terms of human rights till christians go as the body of Christ with the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose darkness, not God, rules over that territory. So the church is the authorized dealer of the kingdom with keys. Otherwise, if the church was the kingdom, why would Jesus say, I will build my church? The gates of hell will not prevail against it because I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom. Why would he give the keys of the kingdom to an entity that already was the kingdom? He's giving the keys of the kingdom to the authorized dealer, you. Now, where you go, you have... Yeah, this is a total twisting of the doctrine of the office of the keys. If you're not sure what that is, you can find this at bookofconcord.com. Potential to unlock heaven on earth. Where you go. You so have- apparently the office of the keys is all about unlocking heaven on earth. Wrong. That's not the kingdom. Potential to unlock heaven on earth. 
Therefore, go ye has a totally different apostolic nuance for us than it did 100 years ago. When go ye meant travel into the Stygian darkness of Africa, go into the jungles of Thailand, take off courageously into mainland China, face off with the communist culture, be in East Berlin when you can get locked up. In other words, go ye was a geographic assignment up until this Twitter, Facebook, interface, iPad generation. Now go ye is a go into every system. Because the systems are shaping the nations and the church in the countries that we're in. I go to these countries. You know where the church is? Bottled up over there in the church mountain. We've had governments that have literally said, give us a Christian candidate because the Christians won't even vote because they believe it's worldly and carnal. So communists and people that are Marxists end up getting elected. And then the Marxists are coming to the Christians and saying, but you guys are the most prosperous. Show us how to govern. Christians are conflicted because they're thinking they're supposed to just be focused on the kingdom of God as though the kingdom of God is just in the church mountain. Does that make sense? Well, it'll make sense to your sons and daughters because they're the move of God that's going to fulfill this thing. They get it right away. So here we go. What we have to do is we have to realize that the church is the authorized dealer to bring the kingdom and that these remnant elites, are going to ha- we're going to have to have a, a group of Daniels and Josephs rising up, going up these mountains. Group of Daniels and Josephs rising up the different mountains. Uh-huh. Yeah. Another twisting of Scripture, even though we didn't actually read it. Up these mountains, we're going to have to have intercession Strong local churches, men like you've got here that can go into those spheres as we've had to do. Larry's done this. I've done this. Doug does this. Going into these meetings in government, in the mayor's office. Now I've got cities coming to me, secular cities coming to me to say, help us transform our city. Why? Because my premise is I don't have to evangelize them in order to change them. What are you talking about? What does it mean to have a city come to you? I have to get them operating under kingdom thinking, kingdom principles. I have to eradicate the corruption and the goofy institutional ideas so the system operates the way God wants to. And as I'm changing the system, the environment shifts in favor of evangelism, and I can start to pick off fruit everywhere. But if I just go in with one punch, looking to lead some of the Jews, boom, I'm out. But if I go in with ideas that solve a problem, everybody gets out of the way. You're anointed to solve the problem. All right, well, so this is like, you know, you guys can do this. And, you know, as you go into this, as you get involved with this game, God prospers you more and more. In fact, your passion, the thing that makes you fully alive, the thing that you love to do most is actually part of your assignment. What most believers I don't think fully appreciate is the fact that the way you're wired, your gifting, your talent, your calling, your ability, what you do best, your signature strengths, were all woven into you because they're part of the uniqueness of the call that's on your life. Where most of us have missed it is we haven't recognized the invitation of the calling is taking us into territory we've never been and you don't... Yeah, boy, this is taking people off of the Great Commission like you wouldn't believe. ...Toronto to find it. Because it's right here in Toronto. In fact, the whole world is in Toronto. You've got a demographic where every nation and tongue virtually lives here. It's one of the few cities in the world where every country is represented. So you touch the world when you touch this city. It's a strategic gateway. All right, final thought. We're just going to take a quick look at this. Go to uh, what, do you, what do you do when you're a believer um, on board the ship 
and, and you're, uh, you're trying to work your way forward, go to Acts 27. Because this, this is the, the quick word the Lord gave me that's going to be a massive encouragement for how you can change the course of nations. Because Canada's great calling is to be leaves for the healing of nations. That means that you've got a, you have a missionary ambassadorship to go into systems all over the world as change agents. And if I, what I'm saying is true, you can go in and invade the territory. Do you know 50% 50, 50 of the commands of Jesus could be done in a secular environment or a Christian environment? One day I sat down and listed all 50 commands. In fact, I got the 50 commands of Christ as a free product I have on my website. I give away to people. 50 commands. 25 of them are covert and 25 are overt. Meaning forgiveness, submitting to authority, going the extra mile, creating a culture of honor. Those ideas that are endemic to what the Christians teach and how they build a community can be done by any organization without necessarily having to have an altar call to get them in the system. Half the commands of Jesus can be brought into a school system before you get kicked out. So if you're smart, you start with the ones that are the most subtle and invade. Then pray the environment shifts before you get in trouble. All right, Acts 20, watch this, Acts 27. The Apostle Paul is, has got a problem. And here's, and here's the problem. Watch what, the, watch what this means. Suppose this picture here is exactly what I'm saying. Suppose that we're, we're on board cities and nations. The churches over here has the solution, but they're not mobilized to leverage their influence in high places. They're not showing up where the gates of hell are, and they're not governing. They're at a distance praying about and talking about. If what I'm saying is true, then it would look like this. It's almost like, take those same mountains, what we got is like, remember the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is stuck on a ship, and that ship is going off. It's, got, it's a big ship. It's got 270 souls on it, 230 souls on it. And this ship is taken off. And here's what Paul's dilemma is. He knows what the country ought to do, but nobody's listening to him. And he's watching them go down the road of making some disastrous decisions. So here we have Paul is on board a ship in chapter 27. And he says, verse 10, sirs, I perceive this voyage is going to be with hurt and much damage not only of the lading of the ship, but also of our lives. In other words, I have a perception of the future, and I'm concerned. Nevertheless, the centurion believes the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken of by Paul. What do you got here? You got these different compartments. Right here, you got three. You got over here, you got the religion compartment where Paul is a prisoner on board this ship. Over here, You've got the um, captain of the ship and the owner of the ship. You've got the guy that's in charge of the service industry, and you've got the guy that's in charge of the money. And they're meeting with the government, who's a centurion. Those are the three players on board. So apparently this ship that Paul was on that ended up being shipwrecked is, uh, is a metaphor for the different mountains you know, that we're all supposed to be uh, engaging in warfare in. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that ship's a parable or some kind of metaphor for the different mountains of the, you know, government and all that nonsense. Ship, religion, government, and business. 
while you have arts and media and family and those things are there, you want to know where the primary, primary conflict is? It's over the conscience of the culture, which is supposed to be in the hands of the people of faith. We're supposed to guard the culture's conscience, help to continue to keep it walking in the fear of God, influencing culture. But then the government is going to make some choices, and business is going to dialogue with government about what's in the best interest of the practical aspect of running a ship. And depending on their level of faith or your level of credibility, they may not be listening to you. Paul was overruled. What do you do when you're a remnant, but you don't have as much influence as you need during a time of crises? Good question. Certainly good in my country. I think you guys are better off in the United States right now in this sense. So what, Paul, what happens is the centurion believed the master, verse 11, an owner of the ship more than Paul. They believed the prognosticators and the wisdom of their council chambers more than the man of God with the word. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, it wasn't convenient, the more part advised, which means they had like a little vote and the majority said, eh, forget what Paul says, let's get out of here. So they take off. The south wind blows softly. The devil always gives you a soft wind in the wrong direction to start. But not long after, verse 14, there arose against it a tempest wind called the Eurocon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up in the wind, we let her drive. Now you're in a crisis you can't get out of. With me on this? Running under the sea. So what happens is now they're trying to undergird the ship. You know what you got here is, you got in my country, what you have is you have a gash put in the front of the ship by Wall Street, and then you have the government over here trying to do a bailout. It's quite realistic to me. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, the, no small tempest, in other words, it's getting worse out there, people. After long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them. What's Paul doing? Paul isn't saying, well, the Lord said I'm going to Rome, so I'm just going to go relax and go to sleep because Jesus is going to get me there. He's actually warring for the fulfillment of his destiny. You know why? Because his destiny is being affected by other people's choices. This is a very important little piece of chapter here. So he's fasting and praying so that this destiny doesn't get interrupted. Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, sirs, you should have listened to me. Nothing like an annoying Jew at this moment right here. Uh-huh, you see, you should have listened to me. He's got to remind them. And you shouldn't have left loose from Crete and gained all his loss and harm. Look at the mess you got into because you didn't listen to me. But he doesn't just wag his finger at the problem and say, uh-huh, this is what happens when you're an ungodly nation. He doesn't say that because I would want that guy back in the basement. Here's what he says. Be of good cheer. I love this because Paul now becomes the solution to the problem nobody else can solve. Be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. What are we talking about? His prophetic face in the future. It's the reason why he's going to get rescued. What's happening here is Jesus told <laughs> What? You're going to have to appear before Caesar two chapters earlier in a prayer closet. When Paul gets stuck on board the ship, he says, I wouldn't leave right now if I was you. They overrule him, get themselves into a situation where they're going to drown him. 
He fasts and prays. He makes his unfinished assignment, his argument with deliverance. And an angel of God breaks through the chaos, shows up. So notice what he did there. He started with what Lance started with his own theology. And now he's imposing that theology on the biblical text as and make and basically manipulating and twisting the story of the shipwreck in Acts 27 to fit his theology that he started with that didn't come from a biblical text, but came from direct revelation and plausible sounding arguments. At least that's it's direct revelation is the claim. I don't think they got this from Jesus at all. Abin. And I love this line. Watch this line. This is amazing. Saying, fear not, Paul. You must be brought before. In other words, your unfinished assignment is about to deliver you from death. But more than that, God's given you all them that sail with you. See, he was with them up until the tipping point. Now they are with him. What? <laughs> oh man, this is absurd that the situation changed. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. We just are going to have to cast upon a certain island. I'm not quite sure the details, but this ship's getting broken up, and there's an island somewhere we're going to bump into. That much the Lord showed me. So basically now they all look at each other and go, wow, that's good news. Now they're believing the report of the man of God. But you notice what happened? Who is now running the ship? Paul's running the ship. Because the moment that tipping point came, he was no longer traveling with them hostage. They were traveling as a prisoner on board his destiny. Two. <laughs> they were prisoners on board Paul's destiny. Oh, my goodness. What a mess. And what exactly is the application of this for our lives? It just makes me wonder. Seventy souls are going to get saved. And they're all going to travel now with Paul. In other words, like the angel says, I got to deliver the FedEx package. You're it. And God's given you all those other packages that are traveling on this ship. They hit an island. When they hit the island, it's cold and it's rainy. It's not the best of timing, but they make it. They swim to shore. When they get there, they're cold. Paul is picking up sticks. What does he do? He throws a stick on the fire. You know what happens next? A serpent comes out from the flames because of the heat. Fastens on his hand. Paul is singled out at that moment on that island, according to the people that are on that island, as the single most unlucky guy they've ever seen. And it even says in the book of Acts, and they're watching him and saying, no doubt this man is cursed because he just barely survives the plane crash and got run over by the ambulance. He makes it all the way to here, and then he's, this serpent, this particular viper, bad. He's going to swell up within three minutes, stick out of his mouth, dead. But here's the deal. Paul shakes off the viper into the fire. Now what he's got is free advertising. Everybody's watching him. And what you've got to know is 
when you're on board someone else's ship, but you have an assignment to complete, your assignment is to prevail in prayer if you can't prevail in persuasion because God will overrule what other people do so you can finish your prophetic purpose. Oh, this is nonsense. He makes all of these statements that are not actually grounded in the text, nor are they implied in the text, or is the, or is it have anything to do with what the text actually means. This guy reminds me of Bill Johnson, who just prognosticates, and and people go, oh wow, oh, this is so as if he has say, this keen insight, and it's just gobbledygook. Got that? Secondly, the territory that comes to you as a result of what the enemy tried to take from you becomes an enlargement of your inheritance, which means after you survive the attack, God gives you more territory than your original. Yeah, I'm not going to be attacked by a serpent the way Paul was. I mean, that it's not like that snake that bit Paul was some kind of allegory or metaphor that actually has something to do with a fulfillment in my life. Yeah, Lance, you are utterly twisting God's word. And had you not been attacked in the first place. So God says to the devil, all right, you're going to try to interrupt the thing and kill him? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to add more territory to him because you tried to do that. So God now gives Malta. Malta wasn't in the original plan. God added it. So now Paul lands on an island. But the territory knows who he is, even though nobody else does. This is part of the conundrum for a believer. You're carrying something the devil knows you got, but the world doesn't recognize who you are. But in that territory, something came out and fastened on his hand. You know what the point is? You're carrying something that will drive the hidden works of darkness to the surface because of the heat you bring into the territory. So that's why, like, you know, we don't talk. Yeah, utter nonsensical narcissists here. Wow, this is bad. But this is the person, this is the weird stuff you go through. This is like, why is this group after you? Why are these? But because they're the vipers being driven to attack you because of the heat. Here's the good news you shake it off, you won't suffer harm. God's now going to add territory to you. So, right at this point, these guys are saying. <laughs> Narcissistic eyes of Jesus. I, yeah, the viper doesn't represent anything in my life. What are you talking about? This is historical narrative. It's not dying. He ain't human. Nobody can survive that and, and live. He must be Superman. So now they're following him around thinking he's like Superman. The, the governor on the ship, back to government, has a father who's sick, dying with a bloody flux, tuberculosis. He's coughing up blood and foam. Paul goes into the hut. Now it's time. This is the first miracle of healing. Notice this is the first time we're going into the signs and wonders revival. And that's what I want to suggest to you. You don't always have to lead with a prayer for the sick. You might be leading by taking over the ship. So now he prays. God delivers this man. They line up. Healing revival takes over. What do you think happens when it's time for them to return back to Rome? I'll tell you what happens. Paul is the most influential guy on the island and on board the ship. And you better believe all those sailors who just watched what happened, their survival, they're all saying to Paul on the way back, so how you feel, buddy? You feel like this is uh, time to go? You got a good feeling on this one? I mean, you know. And so Paul, yo, this is... Yeah, not recorded in the biblical text at all. Going to go. It's like, 
we're going. Everybody, okay, we're going. You know, everybody's comfortable now because the rabbi's happy. <laughs> so for the next three months, they got Rabbi Saul, who delivered them from death and who just took an island and is being laden with all these honors as he's getting on board that ship and the crew's watching it. Jesus said, if any man serves me, him will my father honor. Every piece that you need to make it through circumstances in the next hour are all within that illustration. And that nice thing is, that's not just a story, that's history. Michael Crott's history, four times elected a state senator in his state. He saw heaven. He talked to Jesus. He came back into his body because of his unfinished assignment. The apostle Paul's face was in the future. I want to pray for you right now that you will see more clearly than ever that we're as a church... God is opening up territorial influence with government and business so that you can start to become the person who takes Malta in your own community, in your own life. God wants to enlarge your territory. Father, I thank you. Just put your hands out like this. We're going to pray for an acceleration. Father, I thank you for the acceleration that's come this weekend to your people. And, Lord, there are, there are many members in this body who are going to be part of teams. Why don't you hear what the word of the Lord is saying to me? Some of you are going to have open doors to go into places you've never gone. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience as they make decisions for and know that it's the Lord. Others of you are going to be team members on those journeys which means the Lord's going to have circles and teams here that are going to work together. Some of you are going to be the, the opener. Yeah, notice, again, not Great Commission. This is a totally different mission altogether. Makes you wonder what the origin of this is. The creative guy person is going to open the door up. Other people are going to have skills to, uh, to follow up on details and to do the work that entrepreneurs don't like to do. Because God's going to put you together uniquely with others. Listen to me. Husbands and wives are going to have a whole new level of partnership in the area of agreement. Which means once you're clear, husband or wife, on what your face in the future is, start to pray together as couples. Because God wants to make a showcase argument to the church worldwide. That when husbands and wives pray together and agree for success in taking territory, that that is at a fundamental level the most powerful covenant prayer partnership on planet Earth. So God's looking for marriage showcases for all of that. Right. Nowhere revealed in Scripture. More than praying with a hotline with Joyce Myers or Benny Hinn or Mike Murdoch is your spouse. So, Father, I thank you now that there's a clarity. Done. You get the idea. I mean, this whole thing is a train wreck from beginning to end. And it, yeah, no point in belaboring the point. Let me read to you a passage of scripture and just ask this question. Is this the referent that uh, Revelation 17 is talking about? I wonder at times. I wonder. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. 
And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Just makes me wonder. you know, Because I don't believe Jesus is the one behind the revelation of the seven mountains. It just makes me wonder if the seven mountains really have something to do with what's going on about the deceptions in the last days that are demonic and satanic, but don't have their origin in heaven, but have their origin actually in the pit of hell itself. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.